seconds flat. Give me up. Look at me, look at me. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Hey friends, welcome to mile 75 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. This week, Dr. Richard Hansen joins the program. Dr. Hansen coaches the Roots Running Project and operates high-altitude spine and sport in Boulder, Colorado. While only a few years old, the Roots team has had tremendous success. You'll hear Coach share stories about his athletes, including Noah Drotti, Frank Lara, Aliyah Gray, and Maggie Montoya. Frank previously joined us on Mile 49, and his teammate, Ryan Root, was our guest on Mile 25, right before he joined Coach Hansen's group. Our conversation spans the evolution of roots running as well as altitude-based American training groups in general, the influence of legendary coach Joe Vigil on the team's training, incorporation of strength-based activities for injury risk reduction, and the roots approach to marathon preparation. Here's Richard Hansen and mile 75 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Dr. Hansen, welcome into Seconds Flat. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. Before we get into the team with Roots Running Project, tell us about your background. So I'm a chiropractor here in Boulder, Colorado. I started my practice back in 2009. I ran collegiately at UC San Diego. Uh, At the time, it was a Division II school. Now they just moved up to Division I this last year. As soon as I graduated, I went to chiropractic school and didn't necessarily intend to become a coach, kind of fell into it. My first year out here, I was working as an athletic trainer for a high school hockey team while I was setting up my practice. And the school I was working for knew that I had a background as a, as a collegiate distance runner and they needed help with their high school cross country team and track team and asked if I would help, help coach it. And so I coached there for three to four years um, until my wife now, her and I had started dating at the time, and uh, she she had moved out here to pursue post-collegiate running, joined a group, wasn't necessarily the most professional experience that she was looking for, was looking to make a coaching switch. And one of my friends at the Olympic Training Center put us in touch with Coach Hill, who was willing to take her on as an athlete. I was tasked with implementing her training. So I stepped down at the high school in order to, to help do that. I would pace her through workouts and uh, give Coach Hill feedback as to how he was, how she was doing. Coach Hill at the time was 87, 88 years old, um, lives down in Arizona, would fax us up her training. And so I, I kind of served as that coach, coach on site to help with her, her workouts. And she started doing pretty well um, that first year under him that we started getting contacted by a couple of athletes. Um, one of those being Noah Drotti and the other one uh, was a female by the name of Mara Olson. She was a multi-time All-American at Butler. She was looking to move to the area, had contacted us about being a training partner with Aaliyah. And uh, 
So I started implement, I started implementing coach V Hill's philosophy, but writing the individual workouts for Mara and Noah and both of them had a lot of success that first year. Mara ended up placing top 10 at a believe five or six us uh, road championships. Um, Noah obviously improved quite a bit and then his likeness went viral at the Olympic trials, but the success of Aliyah combined with the success of those two really drove a lot of interest in athletes reaching out to me, athletes wanting to be training partners with those athletes that we decided to form it as an official group back in 2016, made it as a nonprofit. Um, and then over the years we've had some athletes come, some athletes go and, but the success of those collective nature of those athletes has consistently improved. Um, and Mara, Aliyah and Noah being kind of the foundations for that driving force. Mara is now in med school out at UC San Francisco, still competing a little bit, but, um, primarily focused on, on pursuing her doctorate, but the athletes that we've gotten thus far, and obviously this last year with, with Frank and, and Maggie, the talent level of those has consistently improved. The performance level of those has consistently improved. Um, but the, those three in particular were the ones that kind of got, the, got things off the ground for us. Yeah, let's talk more about Coach Joe V. Hill, mm -hmm. who you mentioned there has been an influence since the start of the Roots Running Project. Could you talk more about how he has influenced your uh, approach as a coach since you didn't have an extensive background in that area and also how he uh, maybe helped shape the training that you guys use. Yeah. Coach Hill has been a big mentor to me personally, obviously like he, he loves to give back to the sport, loves talking about the sport outside of the pandemic would still travel quite a bit and, and lecture regarding his training theory philosophy. Um, just somebody that is, been a lifelong coach to a lot of people and, and mentor to a lot of people. What he helped me understand was I had a, a background in physiology and biomechanics from, from my graduate program, but putting the pieces together into uh, how to balance out different training stimuluses, how to, how to adapt an athlete to a certain training stimulus, how to progress an athlete's training load or volume over the years, um, I, I say with the success Noah had, like we expected him to have success to the degree that he did that first year was still surprising, but it wasn't outside of what we were seeing in workouts. But even some of the stuff that I was having him do at the time was kind of setting the stage for when he would eventually become a marathoner two, three years down the road. And those were things that, um, coach B Hill really, really helped me understand. The other thing that I think was interesting to see when he first started writing training for Aaliyah was just the volume of workouts within a, within a week, a week to 10 day cycle. Um, not necessarily volume in terms of uh, how much she was running. Cause if anything, he scaled her volume down from where she was at beforehand. Um, but it was more just the amount you could pack into a short period of time. Now you have to be careful with that because it's easy to get an athlete overtrained or sick or hurt by doing those consistent stimuluses without properly monitoring, which we did see some of that effects uh, in Aaliyah's year two to three under Coach B Hill, where she, she struggled with some sinus infections and 
Um, she got some soft tissue injuries like calf strains and stuff here and there, but overall it, it was that, that training style that Aaliyah was in initially that Noah was in initially where they were doing four to five different hard workouts a week while running 70 to 95 miles a week, uh, was really eye opening at the time. Now I've scaled that down a little bit as the, the, the center athletes on our team, the Willies, the Noah, um, Aaliyah have gotten older um, to give them a little bit more recovery within that same training block. But I think that was one of the biggest takeaways was just how to balance out the different stimuluses, how to make sure they're, they're fitting everything into a necessary microcycle, um, the volume at which they could hit in at that time, and how much running in general tends to emphasize overall mileage in a week. Uh, that was not necessarily a central focus of Coach V Hill's programming. It was more about where is the athlete right now? Where do you want to get them to be? And what is the best course in order to make that happen? Um, volume being a secondary component, it being more adapting them to a certain speed uh, of, a, of a stimulus. And then you can always increase that volume down the road, um, which is what we had Noah do. Like Noah in his first marathon block only had about 10 weeks, but it was only running about 80 miles a week when he ran his 216 at Chicago. Um, it wasn't really until Chicago last year where he started hitting a hundred miles a week. And even then it was only five weeks of that buildup. And this, this one where he ran the 209, he had about 10 to 11 weeks in that hundred mile a week mark but the majority of his volume tends to hover between the 85 to 95 mark. When Aaliyah finished 10th at the Olympic trials back in 2016, I think I said in a podcast where it was over the course of a year and a half, she averaged about 90 miles a week. She didn't have anything over a hundred, but she rarely had anything below 85 except for if she were, uh, on a racing week, everything else was hovering in that 90 mile a week mark. So going into that race, when she had a little bit of a setback with her fibular fracture that she had got rolling her ankle running downhill, the consistency of that past year and a half is what provided her a lot of that strength, um, where a 10 week decrease in overall volume wasn't necessarily impeding her ability to still perform well on the day. So Coach V Hill, I mean, if you ever talk to him, he's a very calming personality. He's a very knowledgeable figure, and he's always willing to give advice in terms of having confidence, bringing a positive attitude to the work that you're doing, the consistency at which you're performing that work, even during their off periods. They don't really shy away from running. It's more of having a mental break from hard training. They're still getting inconsistent volume. But most importantly was just the balance of those different stimuluses and how to, to make sure we were addressing everything that they needed within their cycle consistently throughout the year, regardless of what event they were training for. You're just emphasizing different components based on the event that is kind of the key at the end of that individual season. Those, those I think, were the, the biggest things. Yeah, there's a few really interesting points in there that you raise. First is the number of quality sessions the athletes are getting per week or per microcycle, however you're dividing that up. Um, 
I think what's maybe important to dive into there for everyone listening, though, is what's happening between those sessions, because you have a lot of, of, of high quality there. Now, of course, in your situation, you're dealing with elite athletes mm-hmm. who have maybe different uh, stresses than the average person training for a marathon. But I think regardless of those stresses and also just how many sessions you're looking at per week, what's happening in between has to be really critical to allow you to hit all that quality work. Could you share a little more about what's happening in between a key session and the next key session to allow for recovery and adaptation that you're shooting for to actually be incorporated and continue to consistently grow as a runner? Yeah. So there's a couple things there. One, one is, I don't, I don't really get frustrated very often, but when I get frustrated is when the athlete tries to exceed what I write on paper. So if I write five minute pace for a threshold run and they run 452 for the first couple of miles, and then they run 506 for their next couple of miles, they average 457 for the whole thing. Yeah, they're averaging 457, but the way in which they did that was not necessarily the target for that stimulus. So I have a rule that I want the athletes to focus on hitting what I write on paper. We can always increase that stimulus in the future if they perform up to that level. But if they over exceed what I'm writing on a consistent basis, they run the risk of over exceeding consistently based on the number of stimuluses that we have within a short period of time. And that is a hard lesson particularly for the younger athletes to learn, but also a newer athlete on our team to learn. Because I think that there comes this point of pride that they have to prove that they belong. And Noah had the best best response to one of the athletes that was constantly overdoing it in a workout. He said, you're not going to impress me based on your workouts. You're going to impress me based on how you race. And so if you're constantly two-stepping Noah in a workout, but you're racing 10 seconds per mile slower than him in a race, you're going to lose his, his confidence. You're going to fall out of his favor really quickly. So that tends to be a central rule on the team is do what I write, not try to exceed what I write, which I think in college, a lot of coaches tend to write confidence building workouts And to me, the confidence comes from the consistency of work that you're doing, not necessarily from one individual workout. So that is one central point. Number two is the time in between the workouts is very crucial. What you do in terms of the rest that you get in, how fast you run your recovery runs at, uh, the nutrition that you're putting in, um, the amount of stress that you can minimize, all of those factors do play a role in how effectively and efficiently your body can recover. So if you do a hard workout, you're getting good rest the night before that hard workout, but then you're relieved that hard workout is done. And now you're going out to bars, or you're staying up late, or you're watching Netflix late at night. Like that's impeding a key crucial process of your body's ability to recover from that, to prepare for the next one. Same thing with in inappropriate nutrition, lack of nutrition, uh, poor nutrition, playing a role in how effectively your tissue can recover. Um, so those things are points that we do emphasize the need for proper rest, the need for proper nutrition. Now, some of that I've had to balance a little bit differently over the past couple of years, because 
for the most part, we've had athletes that haven't been vegetarian or vegan on the team. Well, Maggie's been a vegetarian for 18 years of her life. And so having the balance out to make sure she's getting in enough macronutrients to support what she's doing, knowing that she's not getting some of those other key components that do affect distance running performance. We have to monitor that training load a little differently. Um, the other thing on recovery runs is a lot of times I'll post a, a speed for that recovery run, but more in the sense of don't exceed that speed. So it tends to be a slower pace that most distance runners are familiar with being able to run on the recovery runs. Like a lot of times I'll write 730 pace for Noah or eight minute pace for some of our females. And the goal is you can run as slow as you want on those days. Just don't exceed that pace to make sure that you're not, you're, even if you feel good coming off of the workout, you're not overdoing it for what your tissue needs to repair and remodel. And then the other piece is we do an aspect of strength training almost every single day. Now, what that strength training will entail will depend on what the workout for the day is. Um, but there does, there is something strength based on their program consistently. Now the goal of that strength work isn't as the name implies to make them stronger. It's to help promote tissue response, tissue healing, um, based off of the work that they're about to do or the work that they just performed um, to make sure that their body's recovering well. And then the other component, I'm, I'm a big proponent of pool walking. I, I've advocated for its use on a consistent basis on, on other podcasts, but it does promote a healing response. It's one of the more efficient uh, tools that we can utilize. And it doesn't have to be anything from swimming or pool running, but just getting in the shallow end of the pool and kind of moving around can help calm down the nervous system, decrease inflammation, uh, promote a healing response more effectively than what we might get from the use of something like a foam roller or a stick or Norma Tech boots um, that are pretty widely utilized, uh, utilized in, in sport, but not as efficient as getting in a body of water and just kind of moving around. A lot of great stuff there. Uh, you raised a point that is very interesting, and I, I hope our listeners pay attention to. Since uh, I would go back to maybe Coach V. Hill and Coach Larson going to Mammoth, it's been over two decades ago now. We've seen the reemergence of training groups here in the States, particularly at altitude, like you are in Boulder, as a key piece of our distance running renaissance. And those benefits from those training groups have been talked about ad nauseum. But you mentioned a couple points there of limitation that I think apply regardless of the level you're training at and who you're training with and where you're training. But you put more of a, of a stop sign or, or a speed limit maybe on workouts that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And also, if you can't race at X pace, why are you trying to work out at, at X pace and how your athletes respond to that? Because I've been, I've been thinking about the, the possible limitations of that group approach. And it seems like you were a step ahead of me on a question I was going to ask that you've encountered those limitations and addressed them. Because that could even be five guys my age at the local high school track where it, the workout morphs into a race. 
mm-hmm. and and pulling those reins back. So I, I know you you touched on that already, but if maybe you could share a little bit more about why that is so critical in how one day builds to the next. Yeah. So couple couple things, and even addressing training groups in general of where we're kind of at. It's interesting because um, the number of training groups over the last couple of years since Coach V Hill founded the Mamma Track Club, at the time I think it was called the American American Distance Project or American Running Project, some, something like that, um, has has increased consistently. With that, we also have a lot more access to resources with internet and social media and it can be a positive and a negative because athletes have the ability to constantly compare themselves to other training groups, other athletes around the country. In turn, that's also helped promote growth because you see athletes that athletes that you have trained against or raced against or trained with in college doing some incredible things that you know that you're no different and can do those, those things as well. Um, I, I've thought, the, the model that Coach V Hill had started in the early 2000s, we've seen models like that enhance performance, but I also wonder if the model that Coach V Hill has had in the past with, with a group living full-time and training full-time in a place like Mammoth um, would have the same volume of success as it does now, considering the social media factors and all of that involved. Because even when you look at Mammoth, um, they have good athletes that are still training there, but they aren't in Mammoth full-time anymore. They, they split time between some sea level areas. They split time up in Mammoth for altitude stints. You look at Bowerman Track Club and they do altitude stints in Flagstaff and Salt Lake City. They've come to Boulder, but they're primarily centered out of, out of, uh, out of Portland area. Boulder is a unique area in the sense that like you can live and train here full time and we're at moderate altitude. We're close to a big city where it makes it a little less daunting. Like if you were in Mammoth living full time, it can feel pretty isolated. Um, Flagstaff has grown to the sense that it doesn't necessarily feel as isolated as it has in years past. But I think there's a reason why you don't see the number of training groups growing in a place like Mammoth comparative to what you do see in a place like Boulder, in a place like Flagstaff for altitude stints. Flagstaff also makes it easy where if you have inclement weather, you can drop down to Sedona or Phoenix and still get in some higher level training. Boulder, we don't necessarily have that luxury, but we also don't have weather that impacts our ability to train throughout the year. You'll have a couple snowstorms here and there that do impact that, but everything melts relatively quickly and things warm up. So in a sense, like the training groups help provide a better competitive atmosphere for many more opportunities for athletes coming out of college to be able to participate in. But the isolated uh, lifestyle that we saw with some of those initial training groups, I don't know if that same success would apply now based on the social component that does come along with a lot of those other training groups. So with that said, all athletes joining these training groups now have the dream of trying to raise their level of expectation to perform at a higher level. The unsponsored ones are trying to get sponsored. The sponsored ones are trying to make Olympic teams and national teams. And 
with that can drive a sense of competitiveness, even within in your own group. You look at Bowerman and they have arguably one of the top, if not the top training group in the world and multiple athletes training across the same events that you know that the person lining up on that repeat starting line is also going to be the one competing against you for an Olympic team spot. So that's in a, that competitiveness is tough to sometimes subdue in a workout setting, but there was two key stories that help highlight the, the need for those athletes to have the maturity in order to, to keep that as minimal as possible. And one was from Bowerman Track Club when Shalane Flanagan was first starting with the group. She was doing mile repeats and got out too hard on her first 400 and Jerry stopped her and made her start the repeat over because he said, if you're going to be a good marathoner, you have to learn how to pace. And that is kind of a wake up call for an athlete in a sense of Shalane Flanagan's already accomplished at the time when she's joining that group. But here's a coach telling her, you need to learn how to control your emotion in the moment to make sure that you're getting your most, the most out of yourself on competition day. Um, another example was Arturo Berrios, who lives here in Boulder. He was a world record holder for the 10K at the end of the 80s, early 90s. And one of the things he said was he had a rule that regardless of who showed up to work out with him on a day, he ran what was on his schedule because it became too easy for somebody to want to jump into a workout with him and try to push the pace to prove that they could run with Arturo Berrios. And it was for him to keep his ego in check, to know that he has to trust his training, trust his schedule to get the most out of what was being written. Um, Because you don't know a lot of times with athletes jumping in and out of workouts, how many days recovery did they have going into it? What is their overall volume? When's the next race that they're going to have coming up? And same goes with our own group. You may know what all your teammates are doing, but you could be on completely different racing schedules at different phases within, within that training block. And so knowing that it's, it's easy to let your ego take over, it takes a different maturity as an athlete in order to keep that in control. Frank does a really good job at that. And there's times where I'll watch Frank in a workout and on paper, he might have five seconds per mile faster than some of the other guys. And those other guys you see coming around on the loop and they're the ones out front of the pack, even though they're technically on paper supposed to be five seconds behind Frank and Frank's just tucked in with them because in Frank's head, well, if they're going to do the work, I'll let them do the work and I'll just kind of tuck in and make it easier on myself. I asked him the same thing for when he ran his 27-44-10K. He was tucked on the back of the group. And I asked him if he ever had any thoughts of kind of mixing it up towards the front of the group or kind of playing with where he was within that pack. And his response, well, why should I make it harder? Like they're, they're hitting the pace that I want to hit. Like why, why should I be the one out front doing the work when they're more than inclined to do that for me? And that's a different level of maturity from a young athlete that it takes some athletes a while to learn. It becomes too easy to let your ego get in the mindset of like, I need to show that I'm better than this person. So I'm going to be the one leading all of these repeats. And it's funny because the ones that tend to do that more frequently are the slower athletes on the team. And so 
in a sense, they're trying to gain confidence that they can run with those other top athletes on the team. It's the top athlete trying to get to, to keep their emotions in control, that they're not getting offended, that somebody slower than them is now trying to lead the repeat. And it's a tough balance. The slower athlete has to understand of where they're at fitness wise and not to exceed what their schedule entails. The, the faster athlete has to understand their emotion is going to be their biggest enemy at this stage because they need to make sure that they're not over exceeding what's on their schedule to, to optimize what they can do on race day. But it is a constant battle, especially in a team format. Over the last couple of years, I've given the athletes a little bit more free reign in terms of if we have colder weather in the morning, I'll let them have the ability to go on their own in the afternoon or vice versa. If an athlete is really fatigued, like Noah, Noah will text me and say like, I think I need to wait a day because my Achilles is not feeling great or I feel a little bit run down. And it's me understanding the flexibility that has to to go with some of their schedules, particularly for the ones that are a little bit older, um, to be able to, to have a little bit more say as to what their schedule might need. And for the younger athletes, I tend to prescribe mileage on specific days a little bit more rigid comparative to somebody like Noah or Aaliyah, where on a recovery day, I might just say recovery as they feel, as opposed to specifying 10 miles today or 12 miles today. They have a little bit more free reign to balance out their schedule for what they need for the week in terms of overall volume, but um, to determine what they do on each individual day based on how they're feeling more so than the younger athlete. As I gain trust in the younger athlete, I'll start giving them a little bit more free reign in that as well. But a lot of it is, is kind of a balance. It's, it's staying in tune with what your schedule is it's keeping your ego in check to not get it caught up into uh, a, a racing match every time you're, you're in a workout with somebody else. There's certain athletes that work better than others, and I try to pair them up more frequently, but I try to also make them a little uncomfortable but by putting them in a workout with somebody that isn't as comfortable for them to work out with so that they don't, they don't get too used to just one sort of setting when they're in their workout. But it's, it's also takes a reminder on my part when somebody, when I know, like if somebody's too fast on one repeat, fine. But if someone's too fast on subsequent repeats, sometimes that deserves a reminder from me to back it off a little bit. Or a couple of the younger athletes, they might hit what I want on a mile repeat, but they're getting out way too fast that first 800. And then they're cruising it in the back 800 because they know they don't want to get in trouble if they're too fast. But they're also disrupting what the flow of that workout is supposed to be. So it's a constant attention that they need to pay themselves um, to make sure that the goal of the workout is being held intact without it getting caught up into too much of a competition. And I'll bring up some of those stories like I did with Bowerman or Arturo Berrios to some of the athletes, especially those that may not have heard it just to reiterate, like, look, there's runners that have, much better than where you currently are at that had to have also been reminded of those same sort of things because ego ego is there. I mean, there's a book by Ryan holiday called ego is the enemy. And it's true. Like if that, that can cloud your ability to perform consistently and effectively and can dig yourself into a hole before you realize it. And we've seen that in the past where 
we have four or five hard workouts within a week, you're over exceeding one or two of those, one of those is bound to suffer. And that one that's bound to suffer, it's, it allows a good example for me to point out to the athlete of, well, you see what the last couple of workouts that you ran too fast has led to your inability to hit that one workout. And it's funny because they could hit nine out of 10 workouts perfectly. They hit one that ends up not going as well as they wanted to. And they over exceeded on two of those that, that went well. The one that they dwell on the most is that one out of 10 that did not go well. Um, so it's easy. It's easier to just harp on the fact of gain confidence with the consistency of the work that you're doing. Don't get too excited about one workout that went really, really well and uh, get too down on one workout that went poorly. Just learn from what it is that allowed you to, or that, that forced you to perform poorly on that one day. There was an interesting podcast I, I listened to a couple of years ago with a, a, a powerlifting coach who coaches some of the best powerlifters in the world. And he was asked like what percent of one rep max he has his athletes lift on daily basis is. And his response was that they never go off of perceived one rep or percent one rep max. They go off perceived exertion because your perceived exertion level will change on a day-to-day -day basis. And what you're trying to optimize is your 100% one rep max on competition day. And so if you're constantly over exceeding based on just a percent of that one rep max on a day where one day a 70% one rep max might feel like a five out of 10, another day it might feel like a nine out of 10 because that's a moving target in terms of how your body's responding. We try to operate the same way where paces are gauges, but you also have to pay attention to how you're feeling. The paces are gauges in the sense of, I want you to do your best to hit what I write, but I don't want you to exceed it. Now, if you're slightly slow based on how your body feels, I completely get that, but I'd rather you be too slow or right on versus way too fast. There's a simple brilliance to an obsession with the day-to-day -day and not in a way that it's controlling your life, but as you described it, diligently doing exactly what's needed for that day and where that gets you over the long haul that we can see with, with so many of your athletes. You mentioned earlier some of the strength work that you're doing in addition mm -hmm. to your running. So two-part question for you. What are the physiological adaptations that you prioritize in training? And then through your maybe sports medicine lens, some essential functional strength or mobility that you guys are incorporating uh, that you would encourage other athletes to include to buttress those running driven adaptations? Yeah, so the, the central piece with a lot of our strength training is to make sure we're addressing every biomotor stimulus. And so it's different than the idea of we're going to work on arms today. We're going to work on back today. We're going to work on hips today that a lot of strength programs in isolation tend to focus on. What I mean by the biomotor stimulus is, is you think of uh, you think of endurance, you think of power, general strength, proprioception, mobility, and, and you could take, you could take the same exercise and depending on how you implement it, address these, each of those biomotor stimuli. So 
say a squat, for example, if I do a body squat, that's mobility. If I do a single leg squat, that's now proprioception. Proprioception is your body's awareness of where it is in space. So in, in a sense, balance work. If I do a jump squat, that's now power. If I do a weighted squat, that's now general strength. And if I do a squat and I just hold that position, that's now endurance. When I'm describing this to patients, to me, it's, it's like the simplest, it's the simplest and most frustrating way to say, that's how you're going to lower your injury risk overall. There's no such thing as injury prevention, because if you apply a stimulus that the body can't tolerate, it's going to break down. If you're used to running 40 miles a week and all of a sudden you run 80 miles a week, more than likely your body's going to be sore. If you do that consistently enough, something's going to get hurt, whether you strain a muscle or break something. So in order to lower your injury risk, you have to have proper progression in terms of volume, intensity of that volume, the amount of stimuluses that you're incorporating within a week from a running standpoint. Now on the flip side, to lower your injury risk in general, you need to incorporate those biomotor stimuluses on a consistent basis in order to make sure that you're not neglecting a key stimulus to improve your overall athleticism. From all the research that I've read, that's the best way to improve, to lower your injury risk is to improve your overall athleticism. And so in order to do that, you need to incorporate those stimuluses on a consistent basis. So it's funny when I talk to patients and I say, okay, what strength work are you doing? Well, I do yoga three to four times a week. Okay. Well, that's not, that's like a component of that system, but that's not incorporating all of those. And it's, it's neglecting a couple key, key aspects. Or someone might say, well, I lift weight two days a week. Okay, well, what do you do on your non-lifting days? Well, I just see the rest or I do a little bit of foam rolling. Okay, well, you're addressing general strength. Maybe you're addressing some mobility with foam rolling, but you're neglecting three out of the five other components that do improve your ability to have that general athleticism to handle more volume, handle more intensity of that volume. So as I said earlier, like our goal with strength work is not necessarily to make someone stronger. It's to, to be able to handle the demands of training. That's why those different biomotor stimuluses are important. Now, pairing those with the appropriate stimulus is also important. So if it's a recovery day, we might pair it with mobility routines or balance routines, just as much as if it's a hard day, we might pair it with higher level strength training, plyometrics, resistance strength work, medicine ball throws, etc. The progression of those is important. Doing movements your body's familiar with. I wouldn't have an athlete going to single leg squats or uh, weighted resist single leg deadlifts if they can't deadlift effectively, if they can't hip hinge well, if they don't have good depth of movement. So some of it is just about establishing foundational movement patterns you can apply those same movement patterns through the different stimuluses, just changing the way that stimulus is implemented, but making sure you have good coordinated movement before you start adding on higher level tasks. Somebody like Emma Coburn will post a lot of her strength work and some of those look very challenging, but most of those aren't going to be appropriate for the recreational runner, beginner runner, high school runner that hasn't yet established good movement control over how to do those things well. And most people don't have somebody there watching that movement to ensure that they're doing them well. So you don't want to progress with stuff that you're not familiar with. You also don't want to pr 
progress with stuff that you're not doing appropriately in the first place. These, these are high performing athletes. A lot of them still can't squat well. I'm the coach and I'm the only one on the team that could do something like a pistol squat. So I'm not going to have our athletes do pistol squats when I know a lot of them don't have the depth of movement or control on a single leg squat. That's the key stuff with, with the strength work is making sure that you're addressing those biomotor stimuli to not isolate it into specific body groups. We tend to use whole body movements anytime we're doing any one of those stimuluses. When you're doing a forward lunge, you're still incorporating core work um, just as much as you would if you were doing crunches on the ground. My, my, my background from an injury standpoint, I think helps us prioritize movements that are going to reduce our risk of injury. Like we don't do crunches as part of our programming because the functional nature of it as it relates to running is not a, a good transfer of that exercise, but it also can increase our injury susceptibility by fatiguing some of our passive stabilizers on the back of our spine before we do a higher level load like a weighted squat, for example. And that, it, for people that aren't familiar with that, Stuart McGill is like one of the best lumbar researchers in the world. He's based up in Canada and he did a research study a few years ago that compared different core exercises and how they affect the rest of our ability to perform higher level lifts like squats and deadlifts and why you should opt for something like a front plank over something like a crunch. Because even if done appropriately with a crunch, the front squat still keeps intact our stabilizer loads um, without fatiguing that, which doesn't open us up to risk when we're doing higher level lifts compared to something like a crunch that may fatigue because you have now repetitive movement of the spine when you're doing some of those, what are supposed to be lower metabolic demand core exercises. So the strength work in general, like I need to balance well, I'm the one that writes it, which is also a benefit uh, to the athletes because that is a challenge with a lot of runners is if you have your coach running your writing, writing your running program, and then you have a strength coach writing your strength programming, sometimes there's no communication between the two so that the strength coach doesn't necessarily understand the volume at which you're doing of your running programming and vice versa, that that can also inhibit your body's ability to recover well. I have a rule that I don't try to write strength work that takes more than 30, 30 to 40 minutes max on any given day um, because they're already so fatigued from running the volume of the workouts that they're doing. We're not looking to make them more tired. We're trying to help promote a, a certain response after that workout, um, teaching their body to operate with good mechanics under fatigue or try to promote tissue response by incorporating stuff like isometrics or or core isometric exercises, but it takes communication if you do have multiple people writing that programming to make sure that biomotor stimuluses are being addressed, that they're being balanced well, and they're complementing what you're doing from your running programming and not taking away from it. One more question specific to training. I've gotten a, a number of emails recently, and then I think we're going to have to do an episode about the perception of hitting the wall in the marathon. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought I'd ask you, specific to the marathon, what do you perceive as the most significant limiting factor in performance? Fatigue, neuromuscular fatigue being the primary. What I mean by that is every time you hit the ground, your body absorbs 
force from the ground, absorbs that force as load, uses that to propel you forward. Your stabilizers, your IT band, your glute med, your adductors, your posterior tib, your, your peroneals in your lower leg, all are supposed to isometrically contract to help minimize excess movement when you hit the ground and absorb that load. As those stabilizers get tired, our ability to limit that excessive movement gets inhibited and we start using secondary movement patterns, which tend to be our power movers, our calves, our quads, and our hamstrings to do both stabilizer load, uh, to, to both do stabilization and to do power. So our mechanics start to break down because we have now excess movement taking place. We start using stuff that's supposed to be there for power, also now doing power and stabilization. And so our efficiency of movement starts to get much more limited. And that in a, in, in a sense causes us to slow down because we're loading on the ground longer than we would have when we're fresh. And so the amount of force that we're absorbing with each step increases, the amount of time on the ground increases and the longer or the, the faster we're accelerating that rate of fatigue. So neuromuscular fatigue tends to, to be one of the primary fueling with the longer distances in the marathon do play a role because if you start tapping into your glycogen loads early on into the event, you start hitting that wall and hitting that fatigue component. And your glycogen does help supply your tissue with the energy demands it requires to keep your body moving. But neuromuscular fatigue is just as important. And so our bodies, and that doesn't mean like the fad terms that you hear in rehab of glutes are weak. It's not that your glutes are weak. It's just that they get tired easily and the efficiency of neuromuscular recruitment, the way that your, your body cues that tissue to respond to load isn't as efficient as it could be. And that's again, when we go back to some of those strength components that we're talking to talking about, it's helping to shift your fatigue threshold to make sure that you're, you're uh, putting your body in the best position to resist that fatigue when it starts to, to set earlier in, in, the, in those longer distance events than we'd like it to. Your body's ability to, to operate with good mechanics consistently is what's gonna help you reduce that onset. Um, and so you have to do that consistently in training, both with strength work, with the types of workouts that you're doing for those longer distance events, practicing taking in fueling, trying to, to shift the moment at which your body starts tapping into some of those fuel sources. And that's something we've done a lot better at the last couple of years in terms of how to prolong the use of some of those glycogen stores, taking in fluid consistently during or helping the body absorb some of that fluid well, individualizing some of the nutrition requirements during some of those long distance events, but also making sure that the strength training that we're implementing is targeting that same mindset. That's when I talk about something like, would I rather an athlete do a crunch or would I rather them do a standing split squat hold um, for core work? They're still using the core in both senses, but one is going to mimic more of a specific fatigue for running than the other one would. Yeah, you did an excellent job there leading us to the implications for training that come from fatigue as, as you said, the, the key factor in 
marathon, ultra distance as well, performance. Mm -hmm. You've referenced Noah Drati a few times mm -hmm. here, and his story's become even more well-known recently after the marathon project. He went from a Division Three All-America to out of running in a formal sense, and you were the only team, I believe, offering him a spot when he looked to recommit to the sport. Mm -hmm. Now he's a 209 marathoner. What did you see in Noah when he started with you? And, and what have been some key ingredients in the recipe that have yielded the progress to where he is now? So we, Noah, I believe, contacted five or six teams. I was the only, one that, only coach that responded to him. And I think he would admit, based on the marks that he had at the time, it wasn't a surprise that no one was really getting back to him. At the time, he was a 29-47, 10-care, 14-37, 5-care, so good by Division three standards. Not necessarily somebody that you'd uh, expect to, to have the trajectory that he has had on the post-collegiate level. There was a couple reasons why I contacted or uh, responded to know in the first place. One was we were a new group. And so we were at the time trying to get athletes. And in my opinion, we were fortunate to get someone like Mara that had the talent level that she did, but there was no reason for somebody like Mara to even contact me as a coach because I hadn't done anything yet as a coach. I hadn't proven that I can develop an athlete. I haven't shown that I could coach an elite athlete. I was helping my, my fiance now wife at the time with her training, but you could argue coach V Hill is the one writing those, those workouts. So somebody like Noah was going to be a project that if Noah can develop and be a competitor on a national level at some of these road championships, then it's more of a testament to my ability to develop an athlete, which is why I think we've been able to do well as a team because we're able to, to kind of take an athlete that had more modest beginnings in their athletic career and been able to improve them up to a level to be competitive on the national stage. Somebody like Frank is now becoming competitive on the international stage. Noah, same thing. Aliyah's been able to be top 10 at two world marathon majors. So with that comes appropriate training, but also comes belief and confidence in ability that you're not going to be intimidated by a starting line that you find yourself on. Noah, by all accounts, blew up at the Olympic trials where his likeness went viral which he will say is a devastating moment in his career. He was in better shape than what he showed on the day. We expected a better performance than what he showed on the day. But it was also the first time he was on a bigger national stage at that point, comparative to anything else he had ever been on. He raced the U.S. half marathon championships, but there's arguably 10 to 12 good guys and not the same level that you're having at the U.S. Olympic trials. Um, when he ran his 28-22 to qualify, there was two guys in that race that ended up making it into the Olympic trials at the time. So it's like, I don't fault him for having a bad performance on that because you sometimes have to go through those experiences, but it was still a new experience for him at the time, even if we felt like his, his ability on that, in that moment was going to be better than what it was. So with that, like his development wasn't a surprise in terms of where 
it's funny because I, I thought he could be a, a sub 210 marathoner. Now he's a sub 210 marathoner. And now it's like, okay, well now what? <laughs> because at the moment when I first took him on, it's like, okay, I think you can eventually be a sub 210 marathoner. He has efficiency of movement when it comes to his mechanics. He tends to do better over the longer distances. He struggles with speed work, but he tends to excel when he's doing threshold work, when he's doing long sustained efforts. And the challenge with the collegiate system is the longest distance you, you race outside of NAIA is the 10K distance. So you really have no idea who's going to be a good marathoner. We just knew he was developing later in his collegiate career than what he showed in high school and what he showed early on in his collegiate career. So the longest distance you race in high school is two miles, three miles for cross country. But still, like if most athletes were like myself, cross country was a fun thing to do. The two mile for me in track was I hated it. It was a cool down. I was more of excited for the mile. Everyone wants to run a fast mile time when they're in high school. In in college, it becomes no different. Like it's daunting to run 25 laps on the track as a 10K runner. It takes a little bit to get used to, but that's still the longest distance that you race in college. And so your ability to show what you can do at those longer distances, you just won't know until someone starts training specifically for them. So we knew he had some baseline ability. 1437, 2947 is not competitive as a post-collegiate, but it was good enough to give you some sense that, okay, there's at least some talent there that if he's able to break 14 minutes in the 5K or 29 minutes in the 10K, he's going to be stoked because it's much faster than what he has done up to that point. It's going to increase his level of belief. And then it's a matter of how far he wants to take that level of belief into his career. And then when you start talking sub 29 and you're talking sub 14, now you're talking, okay, it's not that far out of the question that you can hit an Olympic trials qualifier mark in say the 10 K or run competitively in the half marathon. Or when you convert that over, now you're talking a 215, 216 marathon. You're like, okay, that can be competitive in some national class marathon events. So there was some baseline ability there, how far it was going to take him. That's up to the athlete and the mental makeup of the athlete, because the training will take them so far. We've had some talented athletes in the past that didn't have the same mental makeup as uh, some of the athletes that we currently have on the team. It's taken Maggie a little bit to learn that because she struggled her first year out. She would put down these incredible workouts but then implode halfway through every event that she was in, regardless if it was a 1500 to 5k or a 10k. And so it's taken a little bit for her to establish the level of confidence to be able to see the race through based on what her fitness was showing. And that's one thing that when with our training is, like I said, we have no key workouts, but it's more the consistency at performing the work because then you get so many data points to establish what level of fitness that the athlete is in. So then I, if I tell Noah, yeah, you're capable of running 209, it's not out of the question. He's capable of running 209 based on everything he's done in workouts. It's just now a matter of his confidence and willingness to hurt in the moment that we'll put in there. Now, when he was ready to run, 213, 212, I wasn't about to send him out at 209 pace and blow smoke up his ass that like, yeah, you're going to run 209 because you were showing 212 fitness. You still have to run up to the level of fitness. But if you do that consistently enough and you're able to stay healthy and train consistent, consistently, then over time you should find yourself in today it's 213, but tomorrow it's 211. And then the next day it's 209. Um, because your your training indicates that that's the trajectory that you're on. Everyone has a talent 
threshold or ceiling that their body is going to be capable of running doesn't necessarily mean they can't still make in incremental improvements, but at a certain point is 209 Noah's cap is 207 Noah's cap. Like we won't know until he keeps trying to push that envelope a little bit more from what he's previously done in the past, assuming health and interest and motivation and focus and confidence remain intact. And that's something where Frank is really, really excelling at in a short time as a post-collegiate that he has a large confidence already. He's not afraid to race anybody. He lets his body go on autopilot for the majority of those races until it's time to actually race because at a 10 K it's like, it's the final K to a mile that you really have to kind of dig deep and the marathon's the final four, uh, four miles to 10 K that you really have to dig deep, but your, your fitness at a certain point should be the thing that gets you through the, eight, the first 80%, 90% of that race. And then it's a matter of will on the backside. And that will is not something you necessarily can train. That's something that the athlete has to develop over time and, or have innate within them that allows them to kind of see it through. Well, it's an Olympic year, albeit an uncertain one. And while your athletes have experienced some great success at the marathon, we're also excited to see how runners like Frank and, and Noah do on the track this year. So we wish you the best uh, as we move towards the Olympic trials this summer and hopefully the return soon, maybe this fall of some more normal marathon majors for all of us. For sure. Coach Hanson, it's been an absolute pleasure. Super informative. Good luck uh, with the 2021 season and moving forward. Yeah, thank you very much. Hopefully it's a healthy one for everybody. But like you said, the opportunities coming back, I think will be an exciting piece that I think we're already seeing that once athletes have an opportunity, athletes are taking advantage of it. So hopefully we get more of those this year. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Some, some blistering times already so far this season. And hopefully the recreational runners out there can carry that over too with some good for training sure. over the past year when they get their shots. So absolutely. So again, thank you very much and best wishes for Roots Running Project going forward. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks again to Coach Hansen for sharing his time and so many training ideas. To learn more about the team, visit rootsrunning.org. And for more from his mentor, Joe Vihill, check out the timeless training reference, Road to the Top by Coach Vihill, and the recent biography, Chasing Excellence, the remarkable life and inspiring Vihilosophy of Coach Joe I. V. Hill. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time on Mile 76 of Seconds Flat.